Greetings and welcome to the Truth and Print Podcast. This is your host, Tim Burbeck. It is January something. I don't know, later. What's the, what's the day? The 22nd? Um, so yeah, it's been quite a long time since I last provided a, a podcast update. I think the last time was sept- mid-September, September 15th. Um, so you've probably been wondering where I've been or why I haven't updated... Well, I have a perfectly good explanation for that. It's because uh, I hadn't felt like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> just to be perfectly blunt, uh, when you're a dad and a husband and you have a full-time job and you want to maintain you know, at least two hobbies and priorities, um, you have to make very intentional, specific um, time and prioritization to keep that updated. Um, you know, I got, you know, enough time as it is working a full-time secular job. Um, I'm into, I mean, if you follow me on Instagram, you know that I'm a power lifter and I, I keep that pretty updated. Um, I know I'm just making excuses, but, uh, you know, and then there's other downtime. I don't really consider powerlifting to be sort of like recreational activity. It's just what I do. It's not something I wind down with anyway, but, <clears throat> you know... And I do still Bible study. I, I do still read books. I read lots of theology books and do personal Bible study, personal worship. But um, for anybody who's prepared a sermon or prepared a podcast, you know it takes quite a bit of note-taking and, and research and, and, and preparation. So um, I, I just hadn't made it a priority. But now I am. The other excuse I can come up with is that um, I, I sort of didn't got to where... I had originally planned to do a complete exposition of Leviticus. Um, if you follow me, I'd, you know that I did a couple of chapters, um, and some of that kind of ended up being a little redundant in terms of what I was trying to telegraph, with it being a very Christocentric uh, sort of direction I'm taking with it. And I, I do want to complete Leviticus. Um, I'll, I'll do one more podcast and wrap it all kind of up, really summarize a lot of the stuff. I don't really want to do a, a, a chapter by chapter. I may do that eventually um, with another book, but uh, not Le- with Leviticus. There is, however, a lot more I do want to get to um, that might um, kind of open up an entire whole theology, to be honest with you, um, and a new refreshing look at Leviticus. Uh, I, I kind of attempted to do that with the Christocentric um, telegraphing that I did with it. But um, there's another side underneath the surface of Leviticus that I think it is really important because I really don't see a lot of people preaching Leviticus that way. In fact, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't see anybody preaching Leviticus, but um, most of the time Leviticus is often thought of as just cold law codes, and it's not that. And you got a taste of that when I talked about it, making it... um, very Christocentric, but there is other stuff. Instead of pointing forward to Christ, Leviticus actually points backward into Genesis. And so I do want to do a later podcast sort of um, telegraphing that point um, and making that more clear later on. But today, I wanted to start fresh and um, do something more topical. And from now on, this is kind of what I want to do is something, do podcasts that are a little bit more topical because, I mean, going chapter by chapter uh, requires 
quite a bit of work. I mean, trying to arrange that all together. Um, and a lot of people don't really have the stamina for that kind of thing. Some probably do. But I, I find that topical things tend to attract people a little bit more, including myself. I mean, you know, then I, you know, once I get to like Leviticus 15 or 16 and 8, you know, then you're just kind of like, well, next time is the next chapter. Um, but this, I think doing things a little bit more topical is a little bit more refreshing. If I was a preacher, you know, I would probably cover chapters that way, but, uh, doing podcasts, I'd rather just do things that are interesting. So if that sounds good to you, that sounds good to me too. But today, I wanted to do something, like I mentioned, more topical, and that is talking about Jesus Christ as the King. We talk about Jesus Christ as He's our King all the time, and I think a lot of people kind of vaguely think of that as, well, yeah, I mean, He has that exalted status, you know, our government is not our true authority, Jesus Christ is our true authority, and so on and so forth, and that's all right, I mean, and that's all true, but... There's a way in which the Jews at the time, the Israelites anyway, were foreseeing the coming of a true king. They were expecting that. And they had a certain understanding about what made an Israelite king. As you know, if you know your Old Testament, um, there were Israelite kings <laughs> because there was a whole uh, theocratic monarchy of Israel. So they had kings. So they were looking for a new king. Um, and that's sort of the topic that I wanted to dive in today. What makes Jesus Christ king outside of just, you know, how we view him today with a vaguely exalted status. And not just as a descendant of David who was the king. So I'll just jump right into that. Um, so anybody familiar with the life of David knows that God promised David a royal dynasty. That's... 2 Samuel chapter 7, he makes a covenant with David to this effect, that basically it's only going to be your heirs that have a legitimate claim to this throne from here on out, in perpetuity, meaning forever. Now again, that's familiar. That's the familiar part. And since Jesus is from the line of David, we think of Jesus as the Messiah King, as the son of David, because that's the way he gets described here and there in the Gospels. And to be blunt about it, for most Bible students, that sort of sums up the relationship that they're aware of when it comes to Jesus and Jesus as the king. He's the son of David. What else is there to know? Well, there's a lot to know because the more you know about the institution itself and its trappings, the more intelligent of a reader you will be when you get to the Gospels. Because the Gospels or the Gospel writers know this stuff and they present Jesus in a certain way so that informed readers will pick up what they're laying down, so to speak. They'll catch the references. They'll catch the progressions. They'll catch the presentation. They'll catch what the writer wants them to see between the lines or these subtexts. I want to introduce this topic by introducing an article. Uh, actually, several articles. I'm going to be dipping into this article and a few others. But we'll start with this one in this regard. Um, scholar W. Brian Shelton wrote an article in Trinity Journal back in 2004. It's volume 25 of the new series. That's 2004. And it's entitled, 
an ancient Israelite pattern of kingly accession into the life of Christ. And he begins the article this way. In ancient Jerusalem, there is evidence that would-be kings engaged in a three-part pattern of accession before they ascended to the throne. These royal candidates would be anointed by a prophet, prove themselves to be kingly material, through a feat, and then finally receive an official coronation. This particular Jewish idea, uh, deeply rooted in its Old Testament narratives and in ancient Near Eastern thought, is evident in the gospel narratives of Christ's life. This article examines the presence of this ancient ideal of a tripartite pattern, that means three steps, or three stages, for kingly accession in the life of Christ. After presenting the pattern in its Old Testament context, it finds the same pattern in the New Testament record of Christ's life. So this is what we want to talk about. And again, the goal is twofold, to make us a more intelligent reader of the New Testament by virtue of our Old Testament, um, by virtue of our knowledge of the Old. How the Old Testament content is repurposed in the New Testament. And then two, expose people to the fact that, hey, there are actual studies on this. Scholars, lo and behold, actually spend time about this and writing about it. This isn't something you're going to pick up in a devotional. This is something you're going to have to dip into serious technical material to learn about. Now, Shelton, the author that I quoted, his Shelton's touch point for a number of his ideas is another book that I do recommend uh, if you're really into the history of Israel. And this is out of print, I think, but you can still find it used uh, probably on Amazon or if you Google like used books, um, websites. And that is, I'm probably saying this wrong, Baruch Halpern. And his book is called The Constitution of the Monarchy in Israel. This is a 1981 title, so it's a little bit on the older side. Well, actually almost 40 years, but it's <laughs> it, it's kind of unique. There aren't too many books like this that really look at the monarchy as a monarchy. Like, what are the stages of a session? Is there some significance to biblical references to what a king wears, what he puts on, what he puts off, rings or other jewelry, other items, all that kind of stuff? The officers in the court, the whole administration, the structure of the monarchy. Um, and you get to learn about this monarchy, sort of how it works, the do's and don'ts, the players, the people on the periphery, the rivalries, and how things can be done within the system to get something done or impede something else from being from being done. Well, that's kind of what Halpern's book on the constitution of the mar monarchy in Israel is like. I have a copy. You can still get it used. If you're into this kind of stuff, I highly recommend it. So what Sheldon does in his article is summarize Halpern's study in this regard, the accession material and its importance with respect to Israelite kingship, this way. Quote, in 1981, Baruch Halpern introduced evidence of an ancient Jewish, Jewish expectation that its leaders were to engage in distinct stages of progress as they assessed their positions of kingship. First, there was to be an anointing or some kind of designation of the potential leader. It wasn't always anointing, um, as we'll get to, but that's the first step. Some anointing or some official in some way, 
saying, hey, this is the guy. Continuing, quote, first there was to be an anointing or designation of the potential leader to inaugurate his period of accession. This was just a sort of getting into the loop. Second, there was to be a demonstration of his ability as a warrior and ruler, a proof of his worthiness to be king. Finally, there was to be a coronation following this demonstration, permanently and charismatically confirming him as the rightful ruler. So those are the steps. Just to even pare that down, three steps, three phases, there's a designation One, there's a designation or some concentration of who the guy is, who the candidate is, identification, designation. Number two, that candidate has to demonstrate that he's fit to be king. Three, then there's the coronation. Now, Shelton and Halpern, for that matter, they go through ancient Near Eastern parallels to this, mostly focusing on Mesopotamian and Ugaritic material. What I'm going to do here, I'm not going to go into all the material. I just want to sketch the three stages and then look at how the Gospels imitate them, how the Gospels repurpose them. So the first one, designation, is sort of obvious. That's the obvious one. That's one you'll recognize right out of the gate. And typically, the candidate to be king would be anointed like by the prophet. Samuel anointing David to be king instead of Saul. And we know that from 1 Samuel chapter 16. Those are the kind of obvious ones. And of course, Samuel anoints Saul. This is what we pick up on because it's pretty transparent as we go through. Uh, Shelton writes in this regard, quote, During the Israelite monarchy, Jews believe that Yahweh himself designated Christ king-elect. That's, that's think like president-elect or savior judge. The event of designation took on many aspects in ancient literature, most notably an explicit public or private unction, anointing. Uh, As with David, Saul, Solomon, Jehu, or an implicit unction, um, as with Abijad, Jeroboam, Basha. End quote. Now the... Explicit ones are the big names, Saul, David, Solomon. So in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, um, but so, just so that we get into the one with Saul here, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, I'll just quote that. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince of over his people Israel, end quote. Prince here is actually an important technical term. Elsewhere you have Nagid, but in this case, the ESV sort of, uh, we don't have Nagid in this passage. That's the Hebrew. The translator is still using the wording that you'll find elsewhere, but it's an official status. Quote, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? Of course, the answer is, yeah. Look at what you just did. And of course, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we get Samuel doing this to David. 
Solomon has an anointing in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 34. Let me just turn there real quick. If you read the Old Testament, you know that there was a controversy around Solomon becoming the next king. Uh, not only because of the circumstances of his birth and the whole you know, Bathsheba, Uriah thing and all that stuff, but there was someone who considered themselves, and not without reason, uh, to be next in line. So there was a controversy about the secession. Um, Adonijah presumed that he was supposed to be the heir to the throne and not Solomon. But when we get to 1 Kings chapter 1, when we get to what King David actually wants, we find out that no, it's indeed Solomon. So verse 34 in 1 Kings chapter 1 says, quote, And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there, there as in Gihon, Anoint him over Israel, then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. So this is what happens. There's first there's an official designation. In this case it comes from David, and that is basically law then. Then Solomon has to deal with this pretender to the throne and whatnot. So these are the easy ones to see. Uh, now we have this other sort of category, though, um, these implicit designations. And what Halpern and Shelton, after him, quoting him, quoting Halpern, mean by this is there's some sort of prophetic act. It's not an anointing because that's too transparent. That's too explicit. But there are passages and there are transition from one king to the next in the biblical material where you don't get anointing, but you get some sort of prophetic act or divine declaration like, thus says the Lord, king of thing, that kind of thing that designates the next king, even if anointing is never actually mentioned. So I want to go to one of these. Uh, I'm going to go to 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 20, 29, just so you know, or just so that you get an idea of what Halpern and Shelton are referring to. So this concerns Jeroboam. This, of course, is when the king is going to, or kingdom is going to split after Solomon's death. The kingdom splits in two. Jeroboam is going to be the one that takes control of the northern kingdom, which is going to get called Israel or Ephraim. The capital is going to be in Samaria and all that. And then the southern kingdom is the two tribes of Judah. You remember that's Judah and, and Benjamin. So Jeroboam is over ten. Judah has two tribes. So this is the whole circumstance. If you now if you go to 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 29 and you read this it says that they've tried to convince Rehoboam to not be like his dad. <laughs> okay? This is the whole this is part of the whole complex. But if you get into verse 29 it says, quote, "And at this time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, this is leading up to the whole set of circumstances." The prophet Ahijah the Shilonite, so we have a prophet there, Ahijah, kind of a minor character that's nobody that nobody's going to really... You had to play Bible Trivial Pursuit to get this guy. Found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, 
the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the land of Solomon, and I will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have, excuse me, they have not walked in my ways. So here we have a prophet prophesying the split of the kingdom. And when you get to Rehoboam's story, part of it is presented as Rehoboam's just an idiot. <laughs> but there's a bigger issue here that gets mentioned, and that is idolatry. Okay? Because Solomon married all three, all married, all, not three, all these women. They led him astray, and he worshiped. I mean, it's his fault. Okay? It's not their fault. It's his fault. He worships these other gods. He allows them to be worshipped on holy ground, and so on and so forth. So you get to this prophet. God tells him to do this, thus says the Lord. He tears his garment in twelve pieces, gives ten to Jeroboam, and says, you're going to be king over ten of these tribes. Now there's no anointing there. You can read through this whole thing, and he's never anointed. Ahijah never pours oil on him. But this is an obvious prophetic act that designates Jeroboam to the office of kingship as he's prophesying and, and performing this prophetic act. Now, this isn't contrary, contrary to the Davidic covenant. It's just, if you're going to have a king, uh, not, only in, not only just in ancient Israel, but the broader ancient Near Eastern world, there's a process to doing that. So even though Jeroboam is going to be illegitimate because he's not Davidic, this is a judgment of God. And the same sort of procedural steps are at least observed or telecast to the reader to somebody reading 1 Kings chapter 11. They're going to know that this was of God. This was a prophetic act. God is judging 12 tribes for this or that reason. It's a complex picture um, it's idolatry, but it's also Solomon's just oppressing his people, which he wasn't supposed to do. He's multiplying wives. He's allowing these uh, other idols of other gods being built. He's doing this contrary to all the stuff you've read in the rules for kingship and Deuteronomy and all that, all that stuff. So there's this complex of ideas here, complex reasons why Solomon is getting the kingdom yanked from him, basically. But God isn't going to be working behind the scenes in these set of circumstances to split the monarchy. The reader knows what's on the table here, and, and knows that, at least in terms of judgment, the hand of God is here. And the hand of God isn't going to endorse Jeroboam um, with the authority and does with the power setting up a new place of worship instead of Jerusalem, golden calves and all this kind of stuff. That isn't the point because God specifically says, look, we're going to preserve what's in Jerusalem, the Davidic dynasty. So Jeroboam doesn't, uh, or it, it's, it's, does God's idea or ideal plan. Do, or doesn't do God's ideal or ideal plan. God's not endorsing that. But he is endorsing the judgment of the monarchy. 
So we have a prophetic act, and that's what Halpern and Shelton mean by these implicit sorts of things. That you know that this person who calls themselves king, and yep, that a prophet actually said that, thus says the Lord, this is the guy, through some activity, some statement, some activity. Now the second step was, okay, if you're designated this way, then you need to demonstrate that you're worthy of this title. You're worthy of the office. And Shelton, um, just a couple of sentences here from the article, writes, quote, Like a savior judge of ancient Near Eastern mythology, the Jewish king-elect proved his anointing and his, quote-unquote, charisma by defeating a foe. Halpern declares the designation of the earthly monarch precedes the real or ritual battle upon the succession or successful conclusion of which his permanent enthronement will ensue. That's when the coronation will happen. Now, in Saul's case, this sort of this is kind of interesting. Uh, I'm going to go to First Samuel chapter ten because you actually get this sort of playing out in Saul's life, and it's kind of an obscure passage. Uh, Saul, of course, we we started this passage already. He's anointed to be king when the passage begins, but after he's designated. There's something else that's going to come into play here. I'm going to read you uh, just a few verses. So he's been anointed by Samuel. Okay, and that's and verse 2 says, Samuel speaking to Paul, When you, quote, When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found. Remember, Paul was looking out for his dad's donkeys, and that's when Samuel meets him and anoints him. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys, and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther, and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. They will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, which, um, by the way, can be translated Hill of God or the Hill of the Gods or Gibeath Elohim. It's, it's a place <coughs> where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord <clears throat> will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when you when excuse me, now when these signs meet you, that's the key statement, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to, burn, to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do from that point on. So we have this cryptic statement where he's been anointed. Samuel tells him, hey, there's going to be some things that happen to you. And I'm going to spell them out for you. And when you're changed, especially when the prophesying thing that happens through the Spirit of God and you go up to 
Gibeath Elohim. When these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do. Now remember the Philistines are there, and they're the enemies of the Israelites, obviously. Um, now another source here I want to read from a little bit, because you look at that and go, I don't really know what to do with that. What's the, <laughs> what's the point? This is from Diana Edelman's book, um, King Saul and the Historiography of, or Historiography of Judah. <clears throat> this is volume 121 in the Journal for the Study of the Old Testament Supplement Series. Uh, this is a 1991 book, um, and this is still in print. But she writes, quote, The fulfillment of the final part of the sign is to be Saul's cue, quote, to do what your hand finds to do, unquote. That is to perform a military deed under the guidance of the newly de received divine spirit as the final event during Saul's reported return home, verse 6. Uh, the completion of a military deed forms the second testing step of the tripartite royal coronation ceremony. In other words, it's the second stage. Samuel could have just as well said, Okay, Saul, you're anointed now. Um, there are going to be some things that happen to you. The Spirit of God is going to come upon you. And you're going to prophesy and you're going to get this, that, and the other thing. You're going to go up to Gibeah Elohim, where the Philistines are, do the math. Show us you're worthy of the designation. I mean, the implication is you go up and take that garrison, right? <clears throat> These are the enemies of, the God, uh, uh, enemies of God. They're the Philistines. That's the implication. Um, Edelman continues, quote, The reference in chapter 10, verse 5, to the presence of a Philistine garrison slash commander at Gibeath Ha Elohim, the site where the prophesying is to take place, strongly hints that the anticipated military deed is to take place immediately after the prophesying. I mean, God has come upon, or, or think of the judges. We're still in the time of the judges because Samuel is the last judge. Uh, so this is familiar. When the Spirit of God comes upon you, the Spirit of God comes upon people to empower them to do military things, to deliver the people. The whole book of Judges is this pattern. So the fact that the prophesying, the presence of the Spirit, is supposed to coincide with this trip to Philistine garrison. Again, Saul, do the math, okay? That's kind of the message. You know, do the math. Uh, continuing with Edelman... Um, just a few sentences here, quote, It would also seem to foreshadow the nature of the actual deed Saul is expected to execute, the overthrow slaying of the Philistine garrison slash commander at the Hill of the Gods, that's Gibeath Elohim, a task which links up in turn with Yahweh's command to Samuel in chapter 9, Verse 16, to anoint Saul as the one who will deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Uh, now let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16 that she mentioned. Verse 15, um, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you to a man 
from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince. There's the word, the Hebrew word, Nagid, actually in the text this time. Over my people, Israel, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. <clears throat> now, it's kind of obvious. This is how God introduces Saul to Samuel. Hey, you're going to meet this guy. This guy's going to be the guy to get rid of the Philistines. And then Samuel turns around after he anoints Saul and says to Saul, Okay, this stuff's going to happen to you. You're going to wind up at Gibeath Elohim. There's this, uh, and there's a Philistine garrison there. Okay, do what your hand finds to do. Do the math, okay? So the taking of this garrison is supposed to be the thing that Saul is supposed to do to show that he's worthy of being the king. It's not hard to see, especially when you go back to chapter 9 and you read what God says. This is the one who will deliver my people from the, hell, from the Philistines. Only there's a problem. Saul doesn't do it. <laughs> he doesn't take the garrison. He doesn't even attack it. He just doesn't do it. Instead, if we keep reading in 1 Samuel, this is 1 Samuel chapter 11, he defeats the Ammonites. So now he does do a military act. He does show that he's worthy of a position of essentially commander-in-chief in 1 Samuel chapter 11. But it's not really what he was supposed to do. <laughs> and if you know anything about Saul, this is, this is like Saul's life. Where God puts something in front of him to go do, then he finds a way to mess it up. But, you know, along the way, he does something else, and then he turns around and says, Hey, look at me, I did something good. <laughs> and, you know, Samuel just facepalm, All right, what are we going to do with you, Saul? Uh, again, there are episodes like this in Saul's life. So he turns around, or he goes after the Ammonites instead, uh, here's what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 11. Cutting to the chase here, Samuel says, Okay, this is good enough. <laughs> you, you know, like, it's alright. You're legit. We get it. Even though it was not quite what you were supposed to do, okay. Because there are people who didn't like Saul. They thought he was a hack. Like, who's this guy? And they opposed him. But then he goes up and he beats up on the Ammonites. So Saul's supporters come to Samuel and uh, they say to him, this is verse uh, 12, quote, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel, who was there at the scene, said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. Remember, this is, the, this is where they were supposed to go anyway. But after taking the Philistine garrison, and Samuel's like, okay, all right, you're good enough. Let's just go to Gilgal. <laughs> so all the people went to Gilgal, and they were they... This, um, I'm just reading from verse 15, just continuing on. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Unquote. So it's like, all right, we got us a king, even though this wasn't really what we were supposed to do. He does, he did a good thing, and he handled it well. Okay, he's in. Now with David, this is a little more overt, and a little more following, really, the circumstances God set up. David is anointing, and what is his deed? 
What is his second step to show that he's worthy of being king? Well, it's the story everyone knows when they immediately think of David. He killed Goliath. Right after the anointing. And what does Solomon do? Well, just to illustrate, um, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 13. And with Solomon, there's a bit of difficulty with the secession from David to Solomon. But we have this whole matter of Adonijah. So 1 Kings chapter 2. These are the early days of what Solomon is up against and how he gets into office. David has, David's died a few verses earlier. Um, chapter 13, quote, When Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, she said, Do you come peacefully? He said, peacefully. And she already knows something's up here, or she at least suspects it. Verse 14. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, speak. He said, you know that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, which is Solomon's, for it was his from the Lord. Now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, Speak. And he said, Please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Now, if you remember who this woman was, this was one of David's concubines. She's the one who slept with David to keep him warm in his old age, whether she was like a real concubine or not. But she was part of the harem anyway. So she's sort of the last woman that's in the picture when David is about ready to die. Uh, he's elderly. So Adonijah, who was presuming the kingship was going to be his, and he loses it to Solomon. He goes to David's wife, Bathsheba. Obviously, she has a high position there, sort of like a at that time the queen mother, and says, hey, can you give me Abishag, the Shunammite? The Shunammite wife, or the Shunammite as my wife. Verse 18, Bathsheba said, Very well, I will speak for you to the king. I'll basically, I'll go ask Solomon. Verse 19, So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed to her. This is his mom, all right? <laughs> then he sat on the throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother. She sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask him for the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, and on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zeruiah. Remember, Joab was King's, uh, David's military commander. I mean, Solomon knows what's going on here. Adonijah still wants to be king. And he's trying to penetrate the harem. This is what you did to usurp the kingly office. You not only did military things, but you took the king's wives and his concubines. Uh, you remember Absalom did, did this to David. It's the most explicit example of this in the Old Testament. And there are others. So Solomon knows what's up. 
Basically, Adonijah is not done yet. This is what he's up to. And not only that, but he's got Abiathar the priest and Joab on his side in all this. So this is Solomon's test. This is the test of his worthiness. Is he going to stand up to this? Continue on, we read in verse 23. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me, and placed me on the throne of David, my father, who has made me a house, the household with all the wives and stuff, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. Uh, continuing into verse 26, And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your state, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. When the news came back to Joab, I'm continuing on in verse 28. When the news come back to Joab, for Joab has supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord, the tabernacle, and caught hold of the horns of the altar. When it was told, and when it was told King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. He gives him a chance. But he said, No, I will die here. Then Benaiah brought the word, brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. The king replied to him, Do as he said, strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. This is referring to some of Joab's crimes. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself, Abner the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. And it goes on, but this is how Solomon takes care of business, basically. I know that was a lot of uh, stretch of verses there, but this is his rite of passage. If he doesn't do this stuff, he's going to be eliminated. So in the accession pattern, this is what validates Solomon as the legitimate king, legitimate king. It's this military kind of stuff that Edelman was talking about when I quoted those references about military deeds. Now the third stage, you have your designation, an anointing, but not always, some sort of prophetic act. Then you have an act of legitimacy, some demonstration that you're fit to rule. The third part is the coronation. Um, going back to Shelton, 
uh, he writes this, quote, The initiation of kingship in Israelite ritual is seen in both narrative and liturgy, uh, liturgy of the Old Testament. Such language is particularly witnessed in the enthronement psalms, including associations with Yahweh's investment, victory, and royal appointee. End quote. <clears throat> now, this is probably the least transparent element of the three, at least to our eye. There's no consistent list of specific elements to a coronation ceremony in the Old Testament. There are a lot of separate, disparate ones, but they're not all listed in one passage, either uh, in the historical books or in the Psalms. It's also difficult. There are, there are a couple of Psalms that read like, you could see how this psalm would read as a coronation ceremony, stuff like that, but there's no superscription that says, these are the instructions for what you do when you coronate the king. There's nothing like that explicit. Um, there's a there's a good book on this, I think is uh, by an author. Yeah, this is by um, author Marx V. Brettler. Uh, this is volume 76 in the Journal for the Study of the Old Testament Supplement Series. It's a 1989 book. I'm just going to read a few paragraphs from this. This is Brettler, God is King. A few paragraphs. Um, Scholars continue to debate on the interpretation of the so-called enthronement psalms, Psalms 47, 93, 96, 97, 98, 99, which may refer to God's accession as king. God is portrayed as the king. And this is going to be used of God's son, the king as his son, that sort of thing. So this is why we're, they're pictured as enthronement psalms. Continuing on, quote, According to the methods developed in the study, it is necessary to examine the accession of king, Israelite kings to the throne before these psalms may fruitfully, be fruitfully interpreted. Not all elements of the accession need to be examined in detail. For example, the various methods through which a king rose to power, which will be prominent in a discussion of human kingship, have few parallels in the realm of the divine as described in the Bible. So they will not be studied here. End quote. Basically, the Bible, God is king. You have these broad categories. And then the human kingship element. Uh, these things and these categories can happen in real time in various ways. Uh, continuing, quote, Reconstructing the institutions surrounding becoming king is very difficult because they have no complete text which fully describe or proscribe uh, coronation rituals. Most rituals must be reconstructed from the historical narratives, little bits and pieces in the telling of the story, stories about how this king came to power and died and did this and that. Uh, then the king, next king comes along. You get little bits and pieces, basically. Uh, continuing, Brettler, uh, quote, The Bible leaves us with a very incomplete picture of these rituals, which cannot be completed using other types of sources. This is typically done by using ancient Near Eastern materials, are locating remnants of the earthly enthronement ritual in Psalms, or by pro projecting divine enthronement rituals onto the human king. Each of these methods is problematic. Ancient Near Eastern material may not be used to fill in such gaps because the Israelite coronation ritual, ritual may have differed significantly from that of its neighbors. In other words, we just don't know. Um, continuing, the use of Israelite divine enthronement rituals to Fill the gaps especially problematic because these rituals are often themselves reconstructed. End quote. So he says, look, the sources are incomplete. We're going to do the best job we can 
Uh, and this is what he does in his book. If you get this book, God is King by Brettler, this is still in print. You can also get it uh, in Logos. On page 131, there is a listing of all the elements of coronation that appear somewhere in the kingly material and in Psalms. It's actually a pretty lengthy list, but again, none of these things occur all in one place or even in deep clusters. So let me let me just bring this up. Uh, here it is, the elements of biblical coronations from Brettler's book. I'm just going to read a few things, and I'm not going to tell you which passages each of these occur in, but this is the kind of stuff that happens when Israelite kings become king. There's a special meal. There's a crown given or an armband. There's another anointing. There's a kiss. That's part of the ritual. There are peace offerings offered. There's certain noises or music that's played. There's a special platform. There's an act of sitting on the throne on the platform. There's a blessing of some officer. And then if the older king is still alive, he blesses the new king just to show publicly the transition of who is exactly, of who exactly is chosen as his successor. And it's done publicly in front of a group. That's a quick inter- overview. Uh, I'm skipping some of the elements, but you get the idea. These things, if you read through the historical books, happen in these scenes. And so Brettler says, look, this is the best we got. So this is the kind of thing happens in Saul, with Saul in 1 Kings chapter 11. And I read that passage where Saul says, okay, it wasn't the Philistine garrison, but it's good enough. <laughs> Let's just go down the Gilgal and offer these offerings and whatnot. So Saul is coronated. David is coronated. Second Samuel chapter 15, verse 10. Adonijah, he's the pretender to the throne. And he starts to go through some of this stuff. But then all of a sudden he hears, over here they've anointed Solomon. And you're in uh, big trouble because you presume this. You get these sorts of pictures in the kingship. There's some sorts of official acts that go with the coronation. Um, so after the successful demonstration that you're worthy, there's some kind of ceremony that would identify you. Now, you are the occupant of the throne. And that's sufficient um, for our discussion here. What I want to do now is ask the really simple question, how did the Gospels mimic this? How did the Gospels inform us of Jesus' rise to kingship following this threefold pattern. Now, the first one, the designation, is kind of obvious if you're thinking about the life of Jesus. So recall from the Old Testament that Israelite kings were not always and only designated by anointing with oil. Sometimes there were other things like the bestowal of the Spirit or some divine declaration, thus says the Lord, this is the guy. Like there could be the voice of God or God tells a prophet, this is the next guy and the Spirit comes and all this kind of stuff. So Shelton writes this in his article. He says, quote, God indicates Jesus as his chosen one in his baptism through several specific markers. The last of the prophet figures, John the Baptist, anoints and announces the arrival of the Messiah. Upon his anointing with water by the prophet, God approves him by opening the heavens and declaring, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Besides this water anointing, the gospel accounts suggest a greater and more complex anointing through the Holy Spirit's descent on Jesus as a dove. The anointing of the son of David here echoes that of his type. Samuel took the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord 
came mightily upon David from that day forward. Um, quoting first chapter, first uh, Samuel chapter sixteen, verse thirteen, and that's end quote. That's what happens with Jesus, except it's not oil. Okay, he's baptized, and then he goes forward. The Spirit of God descends upon him, and he goes forward and does his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord empowers him. I mean, right after the baptism, the Spirit of the Lord compels him to do what? Think about it. Compels him to go into the wilderness and do what? To confront an enemy. He has to show he's worthy. And that enemy is Satan. Okay, you don't get a bigger enemy. So here we are at stage two, the demonstration of kingship. Israelite king, you're designated. Now go do something that shows us you're worthy. Defeat a foe. Do some great thing against our enemies. So Shelton writes, continuing, It is significant that this event, the baptism and what happens afterwards, marked the beginning of Christ's ministry, for the activities of the next three and one and a half years function to demonstrate his power over the enemy of God. Basically, he's not just going to have one demonstration that he's worthy. He's going to have a whole bunch of them. Quote, Immediately after his baptismal consecration, Jesus went into the wilderness to accept the challenge of the prince of darkness, Satan. The cosmological dimension of the battle of good versus evil is reflected in Mark chapter 1. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. That was verses 12 and 13. Uh, Luke 4 or chapter 4, verse 14, notes that Christ's ministry began after the wilderness episode when Jesus, quote, returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The temptation in the wilderness is the inaugural event of Christ's battle with Satan that characterizes his entire ministry and work as the Messiah. Like ancient Near Eastern kings, Christ engaged in a victorious phase of demonstration, a proof of his worthiness for the anointing. His dem this demonstration anticipates the final phase for any Jewish king-elect. In other words, this is the expectation. To a Jewish audience, this is what they expect, because they know this is how kings are validated. This is the final phase for any Jewish king-elect. That's how it's done. So then, what about the coronation? Well, Shelton writes that he, the author Shelton writes the initiation of kingship in Israelite ritual as you have some sort of investment, some sort of enthronement event. He writes, quote, At times in the gospel narratives, Christ's identity in the passion imagery is one that ironically, and other writers would say parad no, parodically, displays his glorious crowning as king. Jesus is tried for claiming to sit at the right hand of power. Mark 14, 62 this is what he's on trial for. It's like an insurrection against Caesar. So he's put on trial for claiming to sit at the right hand of power, basically. Uh, continue. He is clothed in a royal robe, Mark fifteen seventeen. He is mockingly bowed before and worshipped, Mark fifteen nineteen. He is crowned with a crown of thorns, Mark fifteen seventeen. The ascending king, the regal one anointed by heaven who came to usher in the kingdom of God, is now being humiliated and executed. End quote. But in the process, you know, when you read the Passion narrative, it's a coronation ceremony. That's the point. He was designated. 
He showed himself worthy for three and a half years, and now he's coronated. So the the crucifixion is a coronation. There's a specific article here, and again, I... um, this is another one, um, but there's a Joel Marcus has an article on this, and this is some steep reading because this is you know really technical scholarly stuff. But I thought I'd throw this one in. Joel Marcus um, titles "Crucifixion as Parodic Exaltation." Product means parody. Journal of Biblical Literature, one twenty five one. This is a two thousand six article. Uh, here's the opening paragraph. The central irony in the passion narratives of the Gospels is that Jesus' crucifixion turns out to be his elevation to kingship. This seems to be the best way to understand, for example, the fact that Mark's Gospel, Jesus, is never called a king until he stands before Pilate on the way to the cross. Yet, from that point forward, within the space of 30 verses, he is called king six times. Three times by Pilate. Twice by mockers just before and just after his crucifixion, and once by the inscription over his cross. These instances of Basilius, that's kingship, are heavy with irony, since none of the characters, neither Pilate nor the soldiers, who mockingly dressed Jesus in royal garb, nor the anonymous composer of the inscription, the king of the Jews, nor the taunting uh, passers-by at Golgotha really believes that he is Jesus is king. Aside from calling Jesus king, dressing him in royal garb, and genuflecting to him, Jesus' executioners also mock his, pres- uh, his pretensions to royalty by crucifying him between two other brigands, thus uh, parodying the king's retinue. Yet, the reader understands that these characters' actions and words point toward a truth unknown to them. Royal garments and crowns rightfully do belong to Jesus, who will show his kingship precisely by not saving himself, but by dying on the cross. Now the point again, this is Mark, Marcus's opening paragraph, the crucifixion is a coronation. We've said many times we're discussing, you know, I've talked about this several times. We talk about the ascension, we talk about the resurrection, but you don't have an ascension and a resurrection unless you have death okay he he has to die this is the coronation that's the path to kingship that's the final stage but i want to marry um that or give its rightful place as number three actually in a tripartite system of how the israelite kings were shown to be kings were put into the office so you can't read the stuff in in the new testament well they're, they're english words but so of course you can read it but the the impact of those words is lost unless you know what's going on in terms of how this would have been perceived in the context of kingship. So, you know, I've gone through those three points, and I wanted to expose you how the New Testament is informed by the Old. It's not always a simple of quoting the Old Testament. There's an entire set of worldview elements or practice that get repurposed in the New Testament, and that's how the Gospel writers dip into Israelite uh, kingship accession process intentionally to portray Jesus as a passing through a series of stages that legitimize him as a king. And he's called a king from there on. So knowing that helps us get more out of the gospel presentations, I think, of Jesus' life. And and this is where I wanted to go with in connecting these dots to show exactly 
how the gospel writers, inspired by God, showed Jesus is a king. Um, so, and and that that's really the length of it. So I, I, re- I hope that you enjoyed that. Next time I'll continue with Leviticus. Join me next time. Thank you.